Hello and welcome to episode 26 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson of the Confederate Army. Now, we ended the last episode with the Battle of Kernstown, which was a tactical defeat for the Confederates. Jackson's little army was driven from the field by a much larger Union force, which qualifies as a defeat. However, from a strategic perspective, it turned out to be one of the great victories of the early war. The United States War Department observed Jackson's tenacity in the valley and saw him to be a far more dangerous foe than they had expected. So the orders were canceled, which would have sent Union General Nathaniel Banks's corps to Richmond uh, to aid in McClellan's attack on the city. Banks was instead ordered to return his divisions back to Winchester in the valley and to pursue Jackson aggressively. Now, Jackson's ferocious little jab at uh, Shields' division of Banks' corps was, uh, had thrown McClellan's offensive plans completely off balance in the east. Banks was now heading south in the valley in pursuit of Jackson. As he did this, his Union army was encountering for the first time escaped slaves on a grand scale. These men and women sought a life of freedom from bondage, uh, and the bluecoats were there as an expression of freedom to them, but the protocols did not yet exist to handle the situation. This was early 1862, and Abraham Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation was not in the works as of yet. Meanwhile, Stonewall's little army was making its way south, away from Banks' army, and this wasn't their only threat. From the west, the old pathfinder, John C. Fremont, had 23,000 troops in the mountains of western Virginia. Fremont had been Grant's boss in the western theater of the war, but he had disgraced himself by official mismanagement and also corruption, for which he should have been sacked. However, somehow, through the magic of Republican politics, Fremont was now back in the field with an army. Now, besides Fremont and Banks, from the east, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Jackson was facing 34,000 men from General Irvin McDowell's army. Yes, this is the same McDowell who lost the Manassas battle in spectacular fashion. The total Union troops in the area was counted at about 76,000, against which Jackson could field only about 17,000 rebel troops. These 17,000 were made up of 3,000 in the South Valley at Stanton under General Edward Johnston, or Johnson, 8,000 that were to the east of the valley at Gordonsville under General Richard S. Ewell, and then another 6,000 directly under Jackson. He had been able to grow his force from 3,500 at Kernstown to nearly 6,000 by the way of the Confederate draft. Now, Jackson was moving his force south from Kernstown on the Valley Turnpike at a pace of about 25 miles per day to get away from Banks' Federals. He was using Ashby's cavalry to jab at Banks' army and found them to be chasing him a lot less aggressively than expected. Actually, it turns out Banks was barely pursuing him at all and had instead adopted a much more leisurely approach to destroying Jackson's army than Lincoln and Stanton had hoped. So, Jackson's Valley Army settled into the Mount Jackson area in the valley and stayed there unmolested for 23 days. 
Jackson spent his time reorganizing his army and dealing with a mutiny in Rockingham County. Google Rockingham County mutiny if you're interested. It's very compelling. Now, why was Banks so slow in pursuing Jackson? Much of this had to do with his own overcautious temperament, just like McClellan, and also from bad weather. Also, Turner Ashby's cavalry bedeviled the Federals at every turn. The Southern horsemen destroyed bridges and culverts and waited in ambush around blind corners. As we discussed in the last episode, the Northern cavalry was no match for the Southerners at this point in the war, and their impact was always out of proportion with the troopers involved. Banks finally did resolve to attack Jackson's position at Mount Jackson, but by the time uh, he formed battle lines for a frontal assault on the position, Jackson was gone. He had, had put his men back on the Valley Turnpike headed south. Then he headed east under the shadow of Massanutten Mountain and put his men into camp at Elk Run Valley. It was April 19th, and none of his officers had any idea what he had in mind. Now, to set our bearings, Massanutten Mountain is located in the center of the Shenandoah Valley toward the southern end. It, it is flanked on both sides by the north and south forks of the Shenandoah River, and the area around it will play heavily into Jackson's plans for the next two months. These places would include Front Royal, Fort Republic, and Cross Keys, among others. Now, for reasons only Banks would know, he stopped his pursuit of Jackson. We do know he was actually quite worried about his long supply lines and the constant harassment of the Federal Cavalry. So he decided to announce to the War Department in Washington that Jackson's army was demoralized and that it had actually left the valley. This was not true at all, and he couldn't possibly have believed this. But Banks was so fervent in his claims that Jackson had left he actually convinced the Union War Secretary Stanton that this was true. So he was allowed by Washington authorities to break off his pursuit of Jackson's army and draw his army back up north to Strasburg in the northern end of the Massanutten Mountain. However, Jackson's army was still very much in the valley at their, clamp, at their camp at uh, Elk Run Valley, during which time the most successful partnership of the war was taking shape. I'm speaking of the partnership between Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. At this time, which was the spring of 1862, Lee was still functioning as Confederate President Davis's military advisor, but he had begun to function really more like a chief, chief of staff. Lee began a correspondence with Jackson in April and gave him guidance that revolutionized Jackson's approach to the Union Army in the Valley. He told Jackson to use General Ewell's division, which, as we mentioned, was situated to the east in Gordonsville, to attack Banks and drive him back. Now, up to this time, Jackson's orders from Johnston had been to avoid undue risk and do what you can to tie up Union forces under Banks, but nothing else. Lee, like Jackson, was proving to have a much more aggressive instinct than Johnston. On April 25th, Lee wrote to Jackson, I have hoped in the present divided condition of the enemy's forces that a successful blow may be dealt them by a rapid combination of our troops. 
The blow, wherever struck, must, to be successful, be sudden and heavy. Now that was new music to Jackson's ears. Lee had been watching Jackson's bold movements in the Romney and Kernstown campaigns, and he knew that they shared the same very aggressive instincts. Now, Jackson didn't have access to nearly enough men to overwhelm the Union forces, so once again Jackson would rely on deception and speed to baffle and confuse the Federals into submission. Jackson wrote Lee back on April 29th with a proposal to go after Fremont's vanguard in Stanton, to go uh, then after Banks' detached forces near uh, New Market, and then still another plan to attack the Federals at Front Royal and Winchester in the northern part of the valley. Before he could get a response from Lee, Jackson had already set his plan into motion to attack Fremont's isolated vanguard force headed for Stanton in the south. Now, during the campaigns that followed, Jackson held no war councils and told his generals only the bare essentials they absolutely needed to know at that moment. This caused extreme frustration, especially on the part of the highly emotional and hard-fighting Richard S. Ewell. Jackson summoned Ewell and his 8,000 men over from Gordonsville to come west and join him at Elk Run on April 30th. But when he arrived, Ewell found Jackson had already left to begin his attack on Fremont's uh, vanguard force just outside Stanton in the south. Ewell knew he was being kept in the dark, and he made his frustrations known to everyone. Now, Ewell was a volatile and idiosyncratic general. He was five foot seven inches tall with a large balding head and a large angular nose. John B. Gordon described him as the oddest, most eccentric genius in the Confederate Army. He was as tender and sympathetic as a woman, but even under slight provocation, he became as rough as a polar bear. Now, Ewell was beginning to believe Jackson was crazy. He and his men were excited by the prospect of fighting in the valley, but now all they, all they could do is sit and wait while Jackson took his men on a seemingly endless wild goose chase that would test their mettle more than ever before. Jackson pushed his men through a nightmare of mud and quicksand south to Port Republic. His staff officer, Henry Kidd Douglas, described it as follows. Over soft and bottomless roads into which horses and wagons and artillery sank, at times almost out of sight, dragged along by main, the main force of horses and men, the general himself on foot lifting and pushing amid the struggling mass. Dead horses and busted wagons littered the sides of the road. The men were soon exhausted and subsisted on a terrible diet of salt pork and cornmeal. If they were lucky, they might eat captured Union supplies of molasses, sugar, peanuts, and even fresh vegetables. And the picket guards often traded with their Union counterparts. Their tobacco would be traded for northern coffee. And if there was time, they would forage for corn, apples, peaches, and cherries from the local farms. But otherwise, they were almost always malnourished and underfed. At Port Republic, Jackson's rebels turned east and crossed over the Blue Ridge Mountains to Meekham's 
River Station. This was May 3rd, and they were actually east of and outside of the valley. Since Jackson was keeping his own counsel, his soldiers and the people of the valley thought he had decided to leave, and they were shocked and appalled. However, leaving the valley was not in Jackson's plan. Instead, at Meekham's River Station, the Confederates boarded six trains that Jackson had somehow commandeered. When boarding the trains, his men were crestfallen because they thought they were leaving the valley for good and headed, for rich, heading, headed to Richmond. However, instead of heading east, the trains took a westwardly course and the men cheered loudly. They were not running away after all. Meanwhile, Jackson had literally fooled everyone as to what his intentions were. The Union had a vast and effective network of spies in the valley, and by being so secretive and by constantly changing course, Jackson managed to confuse them all. He was actually taking his army back west into the valley to attack Fremont's vanguard force just west of Stanton in McDowell, Virginia. Now, this was May 5th, and the Union armies had lost Jackson entirely. His ploy to march east out of the valley and then back into the valley by train to Stanton was a brilliant deception that fooled Banks, Fremont, and the entire Union command. By midday on May 6th, Jackson's force arrived at Stanton, where he joined the 3,000 men of Edward Allegheny Johnson's Confederate force. Allegheny Johnson was a popular old, old Warhorse with a Mexican-American war eye injury that made him blink one of his eyes continuously. He was a hard fighter, and Jackson admired him greatly, which, as we know, was a rarity. Jackson also had available to him 200 cadets from VMI that he had planned to use uh, to care for prisoners and to take care of the wagon trains. Now, for the first time, Jackson was wearing a new gray Confederate uniform instead of his blue major's uniform uniform from VMI. Now, on May 7th, Jackson's command of about 10,000 men marched west out of Stanton into the mountains toward the town of McDowell. Fremont's, Fremont's main Union force was still in the western mountains at Franklin, Virginia, However, his vanguard force of about 3,000 men was under the command of General Robert uh, Milroy, who had captured and was now occupying the town of McDowell. Milroy's scouts learned that Jackson's force was bearing down on McDowell, and he began to send urgent pleas for help to his immediate superior, Robert Schenkt, as well as Fremont himself, who was too far away to help. Banks, meanwhile, was north of Harrisonburg in the valley, still reporting that Jackson was broken and demoralized uh, during the time that this was all unfolding. Now, to set the stage, let's discuss the lay of the land again. Think of the valley as a giant rectangle standing on end from uh, southwest Virginia at Stanton to the northeast at Harper's Ferry. The Appalachian Mountains make up the western boundary, and the Blue Ridge Mountains, the eastern. Jackson's force of about 10,000 was in the southernmost part of the valley at Stanton, heading west toward McDowell. Jackson had two large Union armies uh, opposing him, one under Fremont and the other under Banks. Banks' army was in the valley north of Harrisonburg and out of reach at the moment, and Fremont's army was in the Appalachian Mountains to the northwest, 
However, Fremont's advance guard under General Milroy was isolated in McDowell, far away from the rest of Fremont's army, and was about to be attacked by Jackson's Valley Army. The tables were now turned from his Kernstown experience. Jackson had used uh, speed and deception to achieve numerical superiority. He was about to attack a smaller force of about 3,000 Union troops with his 10,000 Confederates. The Battle of McDowell, as it would come to be known, was a small, fierce, bloody four-hour firefight on a steep mountain slope. Now, Union General Milroy was no Nathaniel Banks. He was a judge from Indiana and one of the more aggressive of the Union commanders in the Eastern Theater. He wanted to fight and was eager to bring Old Testament-style retribution to the South for the sin of slavery. Knowing he was outnumbered and desperate, Milroy staged a surprise attack on the Confederates who had just arrived, and they were at the top of Sitlington's Hill. His plan was daring and bordered on foolhardy. Jackson and his staff were eating dinner at a local hotel about a half a mile away when the Union attacked. Now, Sitlington's Hill was just to the east of McDowell, where Milroy's Union forces were camped. The Confederates occupied the high ground on the hill, and Milroy's Union force advanced toward the waiting rebels into what should have been a disaster for the Union. However, as the Federals crested the hill, the seeming advantage uh, for the Confederates soon vanished due to the topography and the morning sun. The Federals were attacking from the west, and the Federals presented a nicely silhouetted targets due to the eastern sun, while the Federals were approaching in the shadows. Again, the advantage in Union firepower was evident. The Rebels were still using smoothbore muskets, while the Federals, mostly from Ohio, were all equipped with rifled muskets. In fact, a Georgia regiment lost about 40% of their men because they were never able to effectively return fire. Allegheny Johnson was leading the fight for the Confederates, and he was in for the fight of his life. Milroy's Federal regiments attacked vigorously up the hill. The Union troops were getting the best of the fight until... Jackson called forward his Virginia reserves under Tolliver, and finally the Stonewall Brigade, which was several miles to the rear. The fight on the hill lasted until about 10 p.m. when Milroy finally took his men off the hill. Then at 12.30, Milroy finally appreciated how, how much danger he was truly in and began a slow retreat back into the mountains. Jackson began his pursuit on May 9th, but the Federal engineers had felled trees, rolled boulders, burned bridges, and otherwise blocked the mountain passes to keep the rebels at bay. The Federals kept retreating until they were safely in Franklin, back uh, with the remainder of uh, Fremont's army. Now, the Battle of McDowell was a victory for Jackson because he held the field at the end of the day. And most importantly, he had pushed the Federals out of the South Valley. Jackson had evaded Banks long enough to drive Fremont out of the valley. Now he could focus all of his attention on General Banks, who was now in the North Valley. His brilliance was in maneuver at being at the right place at the right time, 
Most importantly for the Confederates, this was a victory at a time when they were losing the fight in the West, and McClellan's giant army was making its crawl up the peninsula towards uh, Richmond. The Lynchburg Virginian wrote, quote, Like a Christian hero, as he is, he ascribed the victory to the Lord of hosts. Long live Jackson! Unquote. Now join me for episode 27, in which we will continue our discussion of Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm.